So today I'm going to be speaking on the redemptive nature of Christ. And if you were at our women's retreat a couple months ago, this was the theme. And it was suggested to me that I kind of redo it again by a friend. And so I kind of compiled two messages together and took out a bunch of stuff or else we'd be here really all morning. For an hour and a half. For, yeah. <laughs> so let's get started. When you think about your life, when you think about your journey, are there still places where you feel like you don't have victory? Those places that it's just like a cloud. You start thinking about it and you feel like, man, I don't know if anything good can ever come out of that. It's like broken dreams, places where you've experienced loss, places where maybe you've had such huge mistakes in your life that you don't think anything um, good or redemptive can come from that place. Maybe sometimes we still live with the results of not loving someone the way we should have loved them, and we still feel that effect in our current day-to-day. -day. You know, we start out so glorious in our design, fearfully and wonderfully made. We're made in his image, and then sin takes hold. It's like, what happens? And I had this, I use this as an illustration at Ladies Retreat. It's not quite as tarnished as it was, because I had to spruce it up for my, my illustration. <laughs> But you know, when sin takes hold, it becomes like a tarnished candlestick. Something that was once beautiful, but the shine becomes covered by the tarnish of sin. And that's kind of what we become. We're still beautiful in our design, but something is lost by the effect of sin. And you know, these, these candlesticks, when I first had this vision of candlesticks as a prop, I had to go find them because they were so tarnished. I didn't have them sitting out on my mantle on my, as a design. I didn't want them sitting out because they weren't looking very nice. And you know, that's sometimes when we are in that place of, of sin, we kind of want to be in the background. We don't want to be on display. And those candlesticks, they weren't being used for their intended purpose. They weren't being used to shine the light of Jesus Christ. But God wants to restore our shine. And we have a God who takes so much delight in redeeming what has been tarnished through our sin. We have a God who will take what's been buried under heaps of shame and he'll restore it for his name's sake. So he is able to rede bring redemption to any and every aspect of our lives. And you know, the road that Jesus walked towards redemption was not a painless journey for him. But we were worth the tears, we were worth the the insults and the torture, and each grueling step up that hill was for the bystand, all of the bystanders who yeah. mocked him, who spat on him, who whipped him. Yeah. And he had no assurance that the very people that he longed to have come to him, he had no assurance that they would actually even turn their affections towards him. But he did it anyway. He went to the cross anyway. You know, God entrusted Jesus with a task that goes against every protective instinct of man. Yeah. And instead of the winning that battle with a fight, he won with surrender. Yeah. And God knew that his son was going to be nothing short of faithful. Ephesians 1 verse 7 says, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace. The word redemption in this Ephesians passage has a fuller meaning and this is why I love looking at the Hebrew and Greek and I'm so grateful I live in this day when I actually don't have to learn the language and I can Google. So listen to this. 
that the word redemption, it emphasizes the distance or a safety margin that results between the rescued person and what previously enslaved them. For the believer, there's a prefix in there that looks back to God's effective work of grace, purchasing them from the debt of sin and bringing them to their new status of being in Christ. So I love that. It's like there's a safety margin. What once was, what once was going to cause me eternal death, I'm now separated from. And I've now been brought into this new place where there's this distance. And I just see this and I like marvel at the grace of God that he would come and he would take me into that place of redemption. And he would free me from my sin-filled behaviors and responses. And this verse in the original language, it talks about looking back. So we don't have to be afraid of actually looking back to see who we once were before we came to Christ. We don't actually have to be afraid to know that before I came to Christ, I was a very lost and broken sinner and I was in desperate need of Jesus Christ. We don't have to worry about being afraid of, of looking at who we really were without Christ. Because you know what, if we do, we're actually missing out on, on just magnifying the grace of God. We miss out on marveling his work in our lives. And you know, as difficult as it is to look at the painful and tarnished places of our lives, we actually can't look at the redemptive nature of God without looking at our mess. But what I love about it is that it's his actions upon me, his love towards me that determine my future and my destiny. It's not my actions of sin or rebellion. It's him that determines where I'm going to go. So just imagine, and I pray this over Jay. Like the greater the sin, the greater the darkness, the greater opportunity for redemption, the greater opportunity for his light to shine and for his name to be glorified. So today we're going to look at two passages. You know, the Bible is one long story of the redemptive nature of God. You can see redemption in every single Bible, there, in every single book. And we actually need to look at, the, read the Old Testament through the lens of redemption. So I want you to turn to Isaiah chapter 43. Verse 1. But now, thus says the Lord, He who created you, O Jacob, He who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you, and through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I give Egypt as your ransom, Cush and Seba in exchange for you. Because you are precious in my eyes and honored, and I love you, I give men in return for you, people in exchange for your life. Fear not, for I am with you, and I will bring your offspring from the east and from the west. I will gather you. So we're just going to stop there. So throughout the book of Isaiah, God is calling his people back to himself, back into relationship. He's all about restoration of relationship. And in Isaiah chapter 7, God reveals himself as Emmanuel, which is God with us. So his desire is to always make himself known to his people that I'm with you. I'm with you. I want to be with you. And in chapter 8, the Lord tells Isaiah, My care for the people of Judah is like the gently flowing waters of Shiloh, but they have rejected it. Shiloh was a river that supplied all the water for the city. So they had the water source that provided all that they needed. But unfortunately, they would not listen to God. They didn't obey him. They were looking to another as their source of deliverance. 
And so in that, in essence, they rejected the provision of Shiloh. They rejected the provision of God. So chapter 28, verse 11, it says, So now God will have to speak to his three people through foreign oppressors who speak a strange language. God has told his people, here is a place to rest. Let the weary rest here. This is a quiet place of rest, but they would not listen. In this portion of Isaiah 43, it was written to the people of God who were going into exile into Babylon. And they had been captured. I preached about this a couple months ago, so we're not going into it in detail. But they had gone into Babylon for 70 years because they had, in their own land, they had freedom to worship God, but they didn't use their freedom to actually come closer to God. They used their freedom to go farther from God and to seek other gods, to seek other idols, to seek other people to be their source. So in the midst of this unnecessary suffering due to their disobedience, because of their choice to sin, in the midst of all of this, Jesus says in verse 1, He who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. He's giving them a message of hope. Upon first glance, you know, whenever I read this before, I always thought Israel, I thought of it as a geographical location, but this time I read it and I'm like, wait a minute. Why is he calling the people of God Jacob and then Israel? And so I began to study it. So I'm like, what's going on here? And do you remember who Jacob was? He wrestled with God, and he got a permanent blow to his hip from wrestling with God. And God changed his name to, from Jacob to Israel. And so Jacob and Israel, those two names are placed together 13 times throughout the book of Isaiah. And Jacob was a deceiver. He was ruled by fear, and so he, he operated through, often when we're ruled by fear or when we live by fear, we try to control and manipulate situations. So that's what Jacob did, and his name meant to supplant, to circumvent, to assail, or to overreach. But you know, God had a destiny on Jacob's life. He wasn't going to leave him as a Jacob. And he, so after the wrestle, he changed his name to Isaiah, or Israel. And Israel means God contended or wrestles with God, or triumphant with God. So I love that. So God is calling the people of Jacob and Israel could represent their state and their character. So as a Jacob, they're in their place of just their flesh, in their place of their own deception. But as an Israel, they're in a place of being triumphant with God. And so he's like talking with them in this sense. And the people of Judah, they were experiencing pain as a result of their sin. They were feeling the effects of living for themselves. Yet in his great mercy and because he's the great I am, the covenant-keeping God, in essence, he's saying, don't be afraid if you're still a Jacob because I'm all-powerful and I'm all-sufficient to change you from a Jacob to an Israel, to change your name. He's going to conquer sin and death so that you can walk into being triumphant with God and he yeah. will do what we are powerless to do. So what does this word redeem actually mean? The root word in this passage means to act as a kinsman. Remember what a kinsman is, a kinsman redeemer. Do you remember the story of Ruth? She had become a widow, lost her husband, and her mother-in-law Naomi was also a widow. And she chose to go with her mother-in-law back to Judah and Bethlehem and to, be, to just stay with her. And, but they were a widow in that day. You were just left in poverty. And so a kinsman redeemer, let me read you the definition. It's a male relative who had the privilege or responsibility to act for a relative who was in trouble, danger, or in need of vindication. 
So the male relative would receive this person and bring this person into their home, and they would take on the responsibility of caring for, their for that person. He would take on the responsibility of bringing them out of that place of poverty and taking care of their needs. And so for Ruth, we know Boaz, he was, a, he was the kinsman redeemer, the wealthy, he was very wealthy, and he took Ruth in and he brought her out of her state of poverty. So God is telling the people of Israel in this passage that he wants to be their kinsman redeemer, that he's going to be that for them. He's going to take them out of their place of poverty, whether it's in your soul, your emotions, your spirit. He'll take you out of that place of poverty, and he will be the one to care for your needs. He will be the one to change you from a Jacob to Israel. So even though we have this amazing exchange his redemption for our sin, it doesn't mean that it's a painless journey for us either. And I want to just, we're going to look at a parable in chapter Luke 15, so you can start turning there. We're just going to look at this story to kind of understand what our part of the journey is into receiving redemption, because it's actually, we might just think, wow, it's easy to receive redemption, but it's actually not. There's some things involved that can be very difficult. So the father, so this parable, it's, it's a story, it's like an allegorical story to represent um, a spiritual truth or a moral lesson. And so the father in this parable represents Father God. And this, this story is meant to give us a picture of the heart of God. You know in the Bible where um, at the you know, section breaks, they've added in like a little title. And so this is, you know, it's called the parable or the prodigal son. And in one of the um, commentaries that I was reading, they changed that. They put in a little title that says, The Prodigal of the Compassionate Father. And I love that because it's actually, this story is more about the heart of God and showing the heart of God than it is about the Son. And um, we always, as people, we want to make it about us. And we've got to keep, we got to keep turning it and making it about the Father. Right on. So turn in your Bibles to Luke 15. And he said, there was a man who had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in the country and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of the country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he, no long, and he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one had given him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your, ser your son." Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But he, while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran, embraced him, and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. And bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us celebrate. For this my son was dead, and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what, th what these things meant. 
And he said to him, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf, because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. But his, and his father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you. I've never disobeyed your command, and yet you gave me, you've never given me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him? And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. So the younger son, he wanted his inheritance, and in that day, to ask for your inheritance early was a great sign of disrespect. It was basically showing that you were more concerned about what you could get from your father than the relationship to him. And yet the father did not hesitate to give him his inheritance. So he gives it to him and the son goes and he squanders everything he had on selfish living. He may not have meant to go and squander it. He may not have meant to, like intended to go out and do that. Maybe he was trying to discover who he was or trying to break free in that day there is still the, the slavery of works and, and the passage about my yoke is easy, my burden is light. The reference to that passage about the yoke is that there's, is they, were, they believed that their works was what got them to salvation. And so maybe they're trying to break free of that heavy yoke of works. But in any case, he only lived for the moment, it seemed to be, with no wisdom for the future. It seemed to be all about immediate pleasure, finding independence, thinking that that would be his source of freedom. But it didn't take long to him for him to learn that actually what he thought would bring him freedom didn't bring him freedom at all. So he comes to a point of desperation, but he didn't come to a point desperate enough to actually return to his father. It was more a desperation because he was starving and he was hungry, so he went and hired himself out. But no one, while he was feeding the pigs, gave him anything to eat. So he finally hits rock bottom. He finally decided to give up his way of trying to find joy and freedom. He finally recognizes his need. And our part of the journey towards redemption starts with recognizing our need. If I live in denial to the state of my need, I'll just be stagnant in my growth. And this is, can be such a painful process when we come face to face with our lack, with what we don't have, with what we can't do. It's a humbling process. when we realize that we don't have what it takes to bring about our own salvation, our own freedom. And sometimes we've been in the same place with Father God as, as he was with his father, where we just want what God wants to give us instead of actually being concerned about a relationship with him. We want his blessings apart from the relationship. And sometimes we think we're mature enough to handle all the blessings of God, but you know, you wouldn't give a 10-year-old a million-dollar inheritance because they're actually not able and mature enough to steward the inheritance. But sometimes, Lord, give us the blessing, give us the blessing, why aren't you blessing us? Well, maybe it's because we actually haven't grown in maturity enough to steward what he wants to give us. It's not that he doesn't want to give it to you, but sometimes we need to grow up a little bit and mature so that we can actually steward what he gives us That's with good. humility and with grace. And soon enough, you know, we're all exposed, just like the prodigal son as proud and incapable of ruling the own kingdom of our lives. I want you to look at verse 17 and 18 with me. So now when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? 
but I perish here with hunger, so I will arise and go to my father. And I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. That phrase, it says when he came to himself, that phrase has an idiom in it that, that represents repentance. So he came to a place of repentance. And so the first thing we need to do is recognize our need and then come to a place where we repent. And you know, God, I love the journey of redemption. We don't just get redeemed. It's like a journey. God started his plan of redemption so many years yeah. ago, and we kind of step into his flow of a redemptive plan. And he, before we even first re realize that, that the Lord is working a redemptive plan in our life, he's already been behind the scenes drawing us to that place of repentance, because we can't even come to the place of repentance on our own. That's right. You know what? I just had this thought. I used to... Um, meet with people a lot, and sometimes we'd start to pray, and they'd get all afraid, well, I can't hear God, but you know what? If any of you are in that place today, and if you have come to faith in Christ, or even if you're on the journey of coming to faith in Christ, but something has been drawing you, that's the Holy Spirit. And if you've been walking in that, you've actually heard the Spirit, and you're listening to the call, you're, you're becoming curious, you're becoming, okay, what's this God all about? What's this Father all about? And you know, during worship today, I just, I felt like, I. I kept feeling like this sense that there's this gentle father here today. Yeah. And there's some of you that have never known a gentle father and you're in need of a gentle father and he's here today for you. He's here today for you to redeem what was stolen from you so long ago and to bring you into that place of hope. Look at verse 19 with me. He says, I am no longer worthy to be called your, your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And when I read that, um, right away I just felt like he was still wearing this robe of shame. Some of the commentaries I was reading said that that was like a mark of humility. But I didn't actually see it as that. And I'll try to explain that as we go here. But it felt like to me that he had come into this place of, I'm that he believed his works, his performance, what he did or didn't do was what was going to determine whether he was going to be called son or what, whether he was going to be called servant. And it was like he came into this place of, I'm not worthy to be called son, so just let me be your servant. And so it's like he comes and he, he says that to his father. And sometimes we do this with God. Instead of returning to him fully, instead of saying, embracing all that comes with being a son or a daughter of the king, we want to say, treat me like one of the servants. We'll be in and around the people of God, but somehow we'll stay as the outcast. We don't fully enter into receiving all of the gifts that the Father has given us. And we allow our pride to keep us from receiving God's best. We'd rather stay hidden on the shelf like a tarnished candlestick because there's others that are more beautiful in their display and I'll just stay here hidden out of sight, out of mind. But God's desire to lavish his best upon you, to give all that he has upon you, has nothing to do with you. It has everything to do with him. That's who he is. He's a God that lavishes. He's a God that gives. He's a God that has given everything for you to have his best. His, one of the purposes of Jesus Christ is to his journey here on earth. The whole purpose was to bring you into that redemptive, restorative place where you have unhindered relationship with Jesus Christ. Yet instead of sometimes receiving that full place of grace, we leave on this garment of shame. We stay in our guilt. 
You know, even Jesus battled shame on the cross. Hebrews 12, 2 says, For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, despising shame. And I was like, despising shame? He despised shame? Why was shame even in the picture? You know, maybe shame was trying to steal the victory. Maybe shame was mocking him and trying to say, look, all of your friends deserted you. You've been abandoned. Maybe shame was trying to turn his, his mind to the humiliation of being stripped naked instead of actually turning his eyes towards you. But you know what? Instead of letting shame have the final say, he stared shame in the face with the joy that was set before him. Yeah. And he conquered it. Yeah. And each of us battle shame, sometimes in huge ways, sometimes in little ways. You know, before our, this was the most hilarious thing to me, I don't think I'll ever forget this moment, but before we had women's retreat, we had our final meeting, and at the beginning of our meetings, we kind of, you know, get our tea and coffee and chit-chat, and I was looking at a piece of paper, and I heard this conversation going on. You know, there's never any wasted time in the kingdom. God uses anything for illustration purposes, but there was this conversation going on about crumbs in the cutlery drawer. And my ear twigged because just the day before, I had opened my cutlery drawer and saw the crumbs, and my thought was, hmm, I should vacuum out this drawer so that if anyone comes to visit, they won't be grossed out by the crumbs. <laughs> and, you know, we think these things, and I'm like, oh my goodness, in this conversation, there was shame attached to having crumbs in our cutlery drawer. And it made me begin to think, I mean, men, I don't know, maybe you don't struggle with that. <laughs> not so much. But yeah, probably not. Maybe yours would be linked to, I don't know, your providers. Maybe there's shame that's attached when you feel like you just can't provide enough. Or, but anyways, this crumbs in the cutlery drawer. It was like that shame made me actually work. God could have been saying to me, Gretchen, it's been a long day. Go put your feet up, take a rest, sit down with your husband, have a conversation with your kids. But no, what am I doing? I'm getting out my vacuum to go and vacuum. When I didn't have to be, and shame was ruling my choice. It was ruling my decision in that moment. And that's just such a simple aspect of where we let shame rule us. It's like we're so afraid of being seen as less than perfect. So first we recognize our need, and then we repent. And then we allow God to be the solution for our shame. So what is the heart of the Father in the face of the Son's shame? Look at verse 20 with me. And he arose and came to his father, but he, while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to the father, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to the servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. And bring him the fattened calf and kill it. Let us eat and celebrate. So don't you love that? It's almost like before the son can even get his confession out, the father is wanting to lavish him yeah. with gifts. He doesn't leave any room for shame to even take hold. That's good. You know, the son could have been returning. I imagine if I had just squandered my entire inheritance and I'm returning home out of desperation, I would have been so afraid. Maybe I would have had to give an account for what I just did with all of this. But you know, Jesus didn't even make room. He didn't shame him. Instead, he ran to him, he embraced him, he kissed him. And what mattered more to the father was a restored relationship. And the father went even beyond giving a full expression of acceptance. He gifted him with the best robe, the best robe, a ring, 
and sandals, and that's all representative of authority, of honor, and of freedom. And then he killed the fattest calf. I would have loved that. I'm a meat eater. <laughs> but you know, they didn't eat a lot of meat back then. It was only for special occasions. And so all of the father's actions, all of his gifts spoke this message of forgiveness to the son. He didn't even have to say, I've forgiven you. He just said it by his, his actions. You know, redemption can't happen without the give and take, without the giving and the receiving of forgiveness. They go hand in hand, and the offering of forgiveness is a finished work on the cross. So the father, he didn't hold any of the actions against his son. He treated him almost as though it didn't even happen. And instead of shaming him publicly, he actually celebrated him publicly. And it takes another level of humility for the son in front of all these other people, knowing what he had done, to actually allow that robe to be put on his shoulders. To actually allow that ring. Because the enemy would have been gone. You hypocrite. Yeah. Would have been trying to expose him. That's not, you're not really worth that. Right. But it takes humility and grace. Say, receive it. Receive it. So we recognize our need. We repent. We allow him to be the solution of our shame and we receive forgiveness. And part of receiving forgiveness involves receiving his grace and receiving his mercy. And you know, we can't do that unless we've actually forgiven ourselves. That's actually a very common thing that we miss in the journey. We, forget, we work on forgiving others and we completely forget that we're still holding something against ourselves. I should have been this, I should have done that. Yeah. And we condemn ourselves. We seek out ways for us to solve our shame problem. We lose our self-respect. Then we act in ways to compensate for our low self-esteem instead of just coming to the Father in humility. You know, I love how the kingdom of God is so different than the kingdom of the world. And ironically, your self-esteem, your self-image is not going to be... The strongest it will ever be is when you actually realize I'm nothing without Jesus Christ. And I don't have to be. It's so freeing when you come to that place. It releases all striving. It releases all of the seeking for attention, the seeking to be loved. Yeah. And I just stand in who he is. We spent so much energy trying to stabilize our pedestals of perfection instead of just receiving the accomplished, finished work on the cross. So we need to let him save us instead of us trying to save ourselves. You know, this parable ends with the older brother, the jealous brother, who represents someone that carries the heart of a Pharisee, which is like a religious heart. It's like someone who doesn't understand the grace of God. They haven't experienced the gracious heart of the Father. So I'm going to read verse 25, if you have your Bible. So now his older son was in the field, and he came and drew near to the house, and he heard music and dance, and he called one of the servants and asked what this meant. And he said to him, your brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in and his father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, look, these many years I have served you and I have never disobeyed your command. You, yet you never gave me a goat that I might celebrate. But when this son of yours came, when I read that, it was kind of, um, you know how husbands and wives, the husband or the, you know, the father would come home after a day 
And you go, you wouldn't believe what your son did today. It's like he couldn't even acknowledge him as a brother. It's like, your son. But this is what he's doing. He didn't even want to acknowledge that he was his brother. It's like, your son. But when this your son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fat calf for him. I was forgetting where I'm going here. All the way to the end. And he said to him, son, you are always with me and all that is mine is yours. So it is fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this is your brother who is dead and is birth. For this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. And you know, when we walk in a spirit of religion, we think it is all about our works. The brother is pointing out all of the things he did. And we operate with a mindset of things that need to be fair and just, and we don't want to celebrate someone else because we operate out of this thought that, well, I should deserve that. I should be getting that. But you know, when we walk in humility, we're just grateful for what we've been given. It's like you have these two different perspectives and which, which one are you going to live in? There may be others in our lives, just like the brother, who don't think that we should get the freedom that we have in Jesus Christ. They don't think maybe we should have the gifts that we have. Maybe they don't think that we should be getting a second chance. You know, people might speak out just like the brother did, reminding him, reminding the Heavenly Father, well, don't you remember how he sinned? Don't you remember what he did? Yet in the middle of your party, Jesus will never hesitate to take the mocking voice aside, to celebrate publicly. And you know, with the son, he didn't just say, well, you know what, if you don't want to celebrate him, you can just go back to the field. No, this passage actually implies that he was saying, you know what, it's actually fitting that you need to be there and celebrate him. The Lord didn't let him off the hook. We need to celebrate each other because we're actually made to shine. We're made to sit on the mantle and we're made to display his glory. We're made to be that intended purpose, to live in freedom of heart and soul, to live with joy-filled days. You're meant to actually be wearing a robe. You're meant to be wearing a ring and to be wearing sandals, the best. You're meant to be walking in the best that the Lord has given you. So it's time to take your place. As we close today, you might be discouraged by a place in your life that's still in a Jacob state. Maybe there's a place in your life that has yet to be touched just by that loving hand of the Father. Maybe there's a place where you're so tarnished or where you're walking in shame like the crumbs in your cutlery drawer. Maybe you're desperate for a kinsman redeemer. You recognize your poverty of heart or mind. You say, man, I need a kinsman redeemer today. Where have you yet to regain your intended purpose? To let his light shine. You know, I find so many people who struggle with a sense of insignificance, like their life hasn't mattered maybe the way they thought it would. Where somehow my, my, what I thought I would be able to give to this life just isn't significant. It doesn't match up when we compare ourselves to other people. And we want to offer God our best, but somehow our best always seems to be less than the next person beside us. We seem to fall short. But I want to encourage you with something today that maybe you haven't thought before. What is it that we've been put on this earth for? It's all about bringing glory to the name of Jesus Christ. 
It's all about bringing glory to God. You know, sometimes we think that, oh, I can only bring glory to God through my best. That maybe it's through my gifts that I'm going to bring glory to God. And you know what? That's true. That is going to bring glory to God. But you know what? Something else is going to bring glory to God is when I bring him everything I wish I wasn't. For him to take it and transform it for his glory. So we don't have to be afraid of those places where we struggle. We don't have to be afraid of being put on the back of the shelf where we want to stay hidden because we're ashamed. He says, come and bring it to me and let me make a name for myself. Come and let his name be glorified through your life. We're all in the same playing field. We all have sins. We all have places of struggle. So today, come and give it to him. And in doing so, come and stand beside those gently flowing rivers of Shiloh where all provision will be made for you. Psalm 130, verse 7 says, O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is unfailing love. His redemption overflows.